0: welcome again to the river tree canal fulton podcast it's our final sermon in our series called two kinds of people and we are just uh it's it's been like a power-packed conversation but it's been a lot of fun thanks for all the great feedback we've been getting on this as we continue to look at what it means for us to see people through the the lens that jesus sees people Uh, it's just been incredible another huge thanks to A lot of you who joined us as we went and prayed at Northwest Schools this past Sunday. It was just an incredible afternoon. So many great stories and opportunities we had. So thank you for making much of that. Uh, We've got some exciting things coming up. If you're looking for some ways to connect to us, the first place to find out everything that's happening is our website, RiverTreeCanalFulton.com. You can hear about a couple of things coming up, including uh, Bonfire Night we're calling Holy Fire. We're going to come together and have just worship and prayer and community together, as well as a luncheon that we're hosting as we launch a new discipleship cohort um, this fall just to help people learn how to join what Jesus is doing in their neighbors and friends and family members. So uh, if you have any questions about that, head over to the website. We pray you enjoy our last sermon in this series, Two Kinds of People. Our reading today comes from one from the Gospel of Matthew, one from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go learn in what this means: I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the right. I' have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then from the Gospel of Luke, he says, "To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else," Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tenth, a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord, we pray you bless the reading of your word in our time together. We pray this in the name of Christ, amen. You can be seated. Before we get going, uh, thank you for being with us. My name's Drew, I'm the campus pastor here at River Tree Canal Fulton. If you are a middle school student I want to invite you to stand up and go with Adam Lowe, our student minister over there. They're going to go for a time together. We call this energy. It's just a great time for our middle school students to be together. Our high school students usually meet on Wednesdays at the Speakeasy downtown, uh, but our middle school crew is getting together now, and it looks like he's got a raucous crew, so don't break Adam, Uh, (laughs) y'all. Thanks for being with us. We are in a series called Two Kinds of People, and this is our last week we've been talking about. This trope that we find in societies where basically we lump people into groups, uh, that there's two kinds of people. And if you were with us our first week, uh, you might remember me introducing you to this guy. This is a picture of my Uncle Troy before he went into the Navy. Uh, Yes, he doesn't look like this anymore, um, but those sideburns were pretty awesome. But my Uncle Troy... When he went to the Navy, he discovered that there are two kinds of people in a way that he wasn't expected. And if there's an image that we've been using that we borrowed from um, a website online that talks about how there's two kinds of people. This was the image. There's people who put milk in their cereal, and then there's people who put cereal into their milk, which some of you automatically, you hear this and you're like, that's weird. Who does that? My uncle Troy grew up in a proud family of people who put their milk in the bowl and then add cereal and he was not ready when he went to the navy so the first time he sat down and ate cereal in the mess hall that the naval psychiatrist came up and watched him do it and was so bewildered and fascinated that someone would not put cereal in the bowl first and then add milk would do it the opposite that literally he became the subject of a study of this like, like my uncle, unbeknownst to him, was a kind of person he didn't know he was until he sat down in the mess hall and decided to have a bowl of cereal. Uh, We've been talking in the series about how there are two kinds of people, and and honestly, the way that we view people, it's a very natural thing for us to lump people together and split people apart, to say people are this kind of person or they're that kind of person. And in all of these tropes, There can be a hint of truth, but there's also can be a little bit of danger. And one of the things we've been pursuing in this series is just asking the question, well, how does Jesus see people? How does Jesus see people? Because as the church of Jesus, we want to see people the way Jesus sees people. We've been looking at some of the different ways that scripture outlines how Jesus sees people. And sometimes Jesus is very clear in lumping people together. And just like my uncle Troy, um, sometimes you don't discover that you're in one group of people or another until someone else comes in and tells you how they see the world. He didn't know that he was in a category of serial uh, people until the psychiatrist sat down with him and was like, no, there's, there's two kinds of people. There's serial first people and there's milk first people. And I've never met a milk first person. What's wrong with you? Why are you so weird? Some of the ways that we... Discover and experience these kinds of categorizations, they don't come through the way that we see the world, but they come through the way others see the world. Uh, and this is something that Jesus himself regularly experienced. Jesus was actually constantly criticized by the religious people of his day for spending time among, we would say, the wrong kind of people. That Jesus found himself in a worldview where there were two kinds of people and that some of the people that Jesus was among were not the kind of people Jesus was supposed to be around, according to them. Um, and this isn't, um, this isn't really a slight, if you understand the historical context of Judaism in the day of Jesus, I mean, the Jewish people had gone through uh, what we call the exile. There was a people who had been promised a place and a land and, and their part of the deal was they were going to be faithful to God and God was going to bring them into a promised land. This is what came to be known as Israel with, with Jerusalem being the place where the temple was, the unique dwelling of the presence of God and yet through Israel's unfaithfulness, they lost that. Uh, there's a huge section of the, the Bible, including a lot of the writings of the prophets that are talking to a people, not who uh, have what God has promised, but who have lost what God promised, not because God was unfaithful, but because they were unfaithful. And even with the rebuilding of the temple into what historians call the Second Temple period, which is where Jesus eventually is is living. Um, in this period, they regain the, the the temple, but they don't regain ownership of it. They're constantly ruled over by the Babylonians, the Assyrians. The Greeks, the Romans, that they find themselves, even though they're back in the land that God had promised them, they're not there the way they were intended to be. And it was a consequence of their own sin. And so in the midst of this, you have a group of religious leaders who decide to double down on making sure that the people are not going to keep doing this and thus them lose the temple again. And so Pharisees were one of a number of groups of religious leaders that were emphatic that we have to be, like as the Jews, we have to be keeping the law because this is what cost us everything that we had before. It wasn't God, it was us. And so they began to build their lives around keeping the law in a very strict and structured way. The conversation in scripture where you're finding people who are looking at those others who are not keeping the law in a contemptuous way, that they're separating, that there's us and there's them. The us was the people who were diligently trying to keep the law so that they weren't putting their inheritance at risk again. And they had a problem with people who weren't doing that. The division that you sense here, it's not coming out of nowhere. It's coming out of a place who actually, they begin to see that holiness was like their method of control to make sure that what happened before doesn't happen Again, But it created a disdain that is very clear in scripture that some of the leaders of the Jewish faith in the community had a very us versus them attitude towards anybody who wasn't fighting to keep the law the way they were, anyone who wasn't fighting to to hold things up. Uh, And this is particularly disruptive if you go to Matthew chapter 9. Where Jesus goes to Matthew, who is a Jew, but who is a tax collector, which means he's working for the Romans. He is not in line with his people, but he's aligned himself with what they would view as their enemy, the one who's occupied them, who's keeping them from their inheritance. That when Jesus goes to Matthew and says, Follow me, and he does, and Matthew takes him to his house, and Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is among the people who are not fighting for the good and future of Israel, and the religious leaders take issue with that. Uh, One commentator says, when Jesus calls Matthew to be among his 12, he shows the universal scope of his compassion. And since Jesus's mission is predicated on mercy and not merit, no one is despicable enough by the standards of society to be outside of his concern and invitation, Matthew's life would change dramatically without question. But Jesus had reached out to him just as he was. If that had happened, then Jesus could reach out to others like Matthew, his former co-workers, and others among the dregs of society. And this was causing a real tension in the religious community because Jesus was making room for people who were not like them. And it began to cause them to ask questions. And this is where Jesus, we see that Jesus is gracious, period. Jesus is gracious. And grace is never fair. Uh, This is one of the beautiful contentions of our faith, is that God is a God of grace towards us in Jesus Christ, and that grace is not fair. And if we're real honest, we don't want God to be fair with us, right? (laughs) Like, we don't want what we deserve. (laughs) Because... If we are brutally honest about our own unfaithfulness, we realize to ask for what we deserve puts us at risk, both here and forever. And that's something that honestly we rejoice in, that God is not a God who simply looks at us and gives us what he deserves, but he is gracious and merciful. And if any sign of that exists, it is the sign of the cross. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the the heartbeat of the good news, that Jesus came, not because we deserved it, but out of his own grace and mercy. But it's interesting because the more of a two kinds of people view that we have of people, especially when we're like there's us and there's not us and there's animosity and there's division in those types of things, what you find, if you're not careful, is that we want grace for us and we want fairness or justice for them. We can very easily be a person who are like, well, God, we definitely, we, we want you to be gracious towards us, but there's there's not a lot of grace towards the people who aren't like us. We want you to hold them accountable. We want you to make sure that they pay, that they get what's coming to them. And when Jesus starts to operate this way, we see one of the major hurdles that all of us, really, who claim to follow after God uh, have to deal with. Jesus identifies one of the major hurdles that keeps us from seeing people the way that he does. It's our own sense of self-righteousness. Now, righteousness is both uh, a posture that we have before God, like kind of being in right standing, but it's also the way that we live. Righteousness is more than uh, a disposition. It is actually the way that we live every day. Um, But it's interesting because if we are not careful, one of the biggest hurdles that we can have in seeing people the way Jesus does is our own sense of self-righteousness before God. That's why today, if we want to say there's two kinds of people in this sermon, we're going to say there's two kinds of people, people who need Jesus and people who don't. Now, some of you immediately in hearing that are like, whoa, 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 preacher. (laughs) Are you saying there's people who actually don't need Jesus No, but there are a lot of people who don't think they need Jesus. And even more than that, the chief concern of these parables and stories is there are people who acknowledge that they need Jesus, but don't live like they need Jesus, because they are standing in their own self-righteousness rather than the work of God. And that's what we want to talk about today. Not simply because it's worth talking about or because Jesus addresses it among the religious in his day, but because I want to be a church that sees people the way Jesus does. And if my own sense of self-righteousness could keep me from being compassionate and gracious towards others, it has to be dealt with. A church that doesn't see that hurdle is in danger of not just missing the sin of self-righteousness, but the greater compassion that we're called to have to people who may not be like us, but do fit into the categories that we've talked about before. Because we've said there's two kinds of people, people that Jesus lives in and people that Jesus died for. That there's two kinds of people. There's people who are sought and people who are sent. And if we are sent people and we're people that Jesus lives in, then we have to see the world clearly. Clearly. And that means we have to be a people not only who acknowledge that everyone needs Jesus, but who live like everyone needs Jesus, with a compassion in us that our own self-righteousness can stand in the way from. To some who were confident of their own self-righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. I, I love this parable, not because I love it, but because sometimes Jesus gives you not what you want, but what you need. Have you ever been there? We have those conversations with the Lord where you're just like, "Ah, that that was not pleasant. That didn't feel good. Um, The Jesus and his compassion for those who would stand in their own way of joining him has this conversation. So he tells them this parable. It says two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. Those Pharisees are those religious leaders that we've kind of talked through. The other a tax collector, much like Matthew. But think in a... A lumping of people. The way that he was confronting this issue was like there's a there's a two kinds of people framework working in religious people that can sometimes be a hurdle that we have to address. The Pharisee stood up and prayed prayed about himself. That in and of itself is like, he prayed about himself. Okay, wow. Um, I thank you that I'm not like other people, uh, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and wouldn't even look up to heaven, beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, it's this man rather than the other who went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, when we hear this story, I keep thinking of like, if you've ever seen the movie Billy Madison there's a scene in it where the principal, Billy Madison, gives this elaborate answer to a question that makes absolutely no sense. And at the end of it, the principal basically says, like, at no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that was considered a rational thought. Uh, Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to what you said. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Um, An extreme response. But one of those things where when we hear this parable, there's a part of us that's just like, We read this and we think, you idiots, right? When you hear this parable, you hear the first guy and you're kind of like, that dude is stupid. Why, why? And and if we're not careful, we actually take the same rhythm on. Thank God I'm not like that guy, (laughs) right? Thank God I'm not like that Pharisee, which is kind of the point of the parable is that we are often very quick to say, I am not like that person. There's two kinds of people and I'm not that Where Jesus is telling the story, and there's this invitation here for us to be a church that when we read, even when we read the scriptures, that our first instinct is not, thank God I'm not like that. But the question, the question in the presence of the Holy Spirit is, is there any part of me that is even remotely like that? Is there any part of me, God, like in my motives, in my heart, that is more like the Pharisee than the tax collector? That kind of thinking, that kind of invitation is the framework that we have to embrace as a church who's looking to become more like Jesus. Because if we're really honest, no one just starts off like this. It's a slow creep. It was funny, in our 9.15 prayer this morning, we always come here at 9.15, we pray for 30 minutes, we we listen, we read a little bit of scripture, we, we pray together, and we come back together and share. And so... Um, just in making room for the spirit, I asked everyone, I was like, hey, was God giving you a sense of anything that you, uh, you feel like he was speaking to you, but you want to share with us? And we had like four people who basically affirm like the same thing. And Sharon had a great image that she used. She said, you ever, like if you wear glasses, you know that you can clean your glasses in the morning, but as you go through the day, you get dirt, you get fingerprints, you get, you know, all sorts of different things on it. And you don't really even notice until all of a sudden you take off your glasses and you're like, Oh gosh. What is that? That there's a tendency in us to not immediately go from Christ have mercy on me and whatever point you first came to Jesus to them being like this self-righteous person who's like, I thank God I'm not like them. But instead there's this gradual collection that can sometimes happen that if we're not willing to just take off the way that we see the world and ask the Holy Spirit to come and to examine us, to help us clean up the way that we see so that we can see the world more like him. If we're not willing to do that, we're already postured in a point where we are not humbled before God. We have to be a people who realize that we can easily become just like the people that we're, we swear that we're nothing like them. So how does it happen? Like how does it happen? I I think as we look at this text, there's three things that we could point at that are kind of this way that this slow creep from being a people who are humble before God to a people who are self-righteous can start to happen. And I think those three things are comparison and our own accomplishments and then self-identification. I'm gonna talk about these three a little bit. So the first one, comparison. The question I kind of wanna put there is something to start stirring some thought in us. Am I quick... To contrast myself with others, am I quick to contrast myself? There's me and there's them, and am I quick to make us and them comparisons when I encounter people? There's this quote from the parable where he says, "God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That the first thing in his prayer." was a prayer of comparison and contrast. I think that's an important thing for us to recognize, that an early sign that we are sliding towards viewing people differently, rather than seeing ourselves all as people who desperately need Jesus, is that when we encounter someone, we immediately contrast ourselves from them, rather than seeing the alignment and the sameness that we have, particularly in our need for Jesus. My pastor, Jeff, always used to say that if we all have the value of God, like we have been given infinite value by God, let's say we're all tens, right? Then I can't take value, I can't add value to myself to make myself more valuable than what God does. So oftentimes what we will do in comparison is we will take away the value of others through the way that we separate them from us. We will compare in a way that says they are of infinite worth and I'm of infinite worth, but really because I do this, because I'm associated with this or because I'm the way I am and they are not, then they're actually a nine or an eight or a two. That there's a way of lumping people together and splitting people apart that's not just a way of understanding, but is actually a way of valuing that tries to lift up Ourselves up,' really what we're doing is we're putting people down in a way. And when we look at the gospel, we look at Jesus, we look at his move to rescue people. You see that he sees both the infinite value of all peoples and he sees the full sinfulness of all peoples. And in his grace and mercy, he doesn't lump us into some group that is not worthy. Of mercy. Instead, we're all in the group that needs mercy, and so we're all in the group that when He offers mercy, can receive it gracefully. That comparison can be this hurdle where if we are quick to not see our similarities, but instead to focus on difference to the point where it chinks down their value and tries to prop ours up, we are automatically moving beyond the fact that Jesus didn't come for the righteous but sinners, that he didn't come because there was people who already had it together. He came because all of humanity in every time and culture and place was in desperate need of a God to rescue them. And so he became the atoning sacrifice, the one who would make a way to bring us back to the Father, not out of our value but out of his love for us so comparison can be one of those things that easily puts us down the slippery slope of starting to see others in a way that prejudices us that keeps us from the compassion that Jesus has for people who are unlike us the second thing i want to talk about accomplishments so let's be honest like as a pastor, if you were here and you were like, hey, it's, I, I've not been a Christian, I want to become a Christian, uh, I want to put my faith in Jesus, you, you confess your sins, you believe in Jesus, and you're, you're saved, right? I would hope that at some point you're like, I want to start living in a more, let's use the term righteous because that's the term used in this text, I want to start living in a more righteous way. I wanna be more forgiving, I wanna like resist temptation, I wanna live in a holy way, I wanna like, give, I wanna serve, I wanna live in the way that God wants me to. Um, doing the things that God has called us to do is a part of our faith, like we have a faith, our faith is not based on works, but we have a faith that works. And so in this text as we're reading and we see um, this, this question, does what I do earn me a place in the kingdom? You, you think of the words of the Pharisee who says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. These were markers of religious faithfulness for the second temple. Like These were like cultural markers of being like, this is what the good people do. This is what the people who are fighting to maintain our status before God, we are doing all of the right things, right? I, I'm, I'm tithing and I am fasting and I'm praying. I'm doing the marks of a good person. Every culture has these. Our cultures have these. If I were to say, hey, what are the marks of a good Christian person? You'd probably be like, boom, 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 boom. you just list them out. And I remember when I was a kid, like that list was like really specific and also like the only thing that seemed to matter in certain circles, are you doing the things? And if you're doing the things, great. And if you're not doing the things, what's wrong with you? And what's amazing is that like doing the things... Became the marker of what it meant to be a follower, Um, and we have to ask the questions like doing the doing the right things, doing good things is not a problem, but we have to ask: Are my acts of faith are they are they the overflow of love and obedience to God? Are they like giving me some false sense that I am now earning my value and worth in the kingdom? Am I now earning my place? God, I've done lots of wrong. Now I'm going to do a lot of right. I'm going to show you how awesome I am. And I'm going to quit saying the things I don't need to say. I'm to quit doing the things I don't need to do. And I'm going to do the right things. And then you'll be proud and you'll love me. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What? This is not what my kingdom is like. There's an important thing that we have to underline because this will distract us. When we see people who are not doing the right things, quote, unquote, is that effort is not the same as earning. Effort in your faith is not the same as earning. You can can read the scriptures all the way through and see there's no opposition to your effort in striving to live the way God calls you to. Over and over, Jesus, John, Paul, Peter, whoever wrote Hebrews, they are fighting to see the church live faithfully. They're calling the church up to do the things like, do the, they're calling the church to believe so deeply that it transforms the way that they live and speak and act and interact. This is not a problem. But effort isn't the same as earning. We have to remember this. Dallas Willard, who's one of the primary voices in the 20th century on Christian formation, he says this, it is crucial to realize that grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Earning is an attitude Effort is action. Without effort, we would be nowhere. There's a real danger in the church when we take our effort towards living the way that God has called us to, fueled by the Holy Spirit, when we take that effort and that we turn it into an attitude of earning that gives us a standing that other people don't. Because I've done X and Y and Z, or I don't do A and B and C, therefore, I am, you know, I'm this much closer to Jesus And it gets us in this weird, like, that framework gets us into this thing where you live daily where you're like, well, I read my Bible and I'm closer. Oh, but then I said a curse word, so I better step away. And then, oh, but then I gave a church, so I'm going to be super close again. And we get this weird back-and-forth relationship with God that is toxic and that is an untrue picture of the gospel. We begin to see our efforts as qualifying us instead of saying, the only thing that qualifies me to stand in the presence of God is Jesus. Like my faithfulness is an overflow of a heart that's been changed. It's not the thing that gives me access to God. Only Jesus gives me access to God. This is why earlier when Jesus confronts the Pharisees at Matthew's house, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If the point is the religious actions, but there has to be no heart underneath it that really understands that I only get to be in God's presence by his grace, not because of anything that I do. Like, if you're missing that, then you're gonna be automatically lumping the people that God loves and is for and seeing them completely differently because they're not doing the things. In Psalm 51, as David is repenting of his sin, he says, God, you do not desire a sacrifice or an offer one. You don't want a burnt offering, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. This is that idea of being humbled before God. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. The right things with the wrong heart are wrong. I'll say that again. The right things with the wrong heart are wrong. David aligns his, not because he does the right sacrifices, because before God, he is humble, like this tax collector beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't have a chance unless you are the one giving me one. And that's why he says, this This is the person who walks away justified because he realizes the only person who gets a chance to stand before God correctly is the person who comes and says, God, give me a chance. I don't have a chance apart from you. It's not my earning that gives me a place here. And any time we're approaching our own faithfulness as if it is giving us footing before God, we're already veering off the path of not only understanding the gospel, but we're going to start building more and more barriers between us and people who don't do the things. And that's not what Jesus does. The last thing. Self-identification. Whose works tell me who I really am? Now, this is a little bit of an extension of this idea of my accomplishments, but I want to lean underneath it because there's a deeper lie here that what I do defines who I am. And this shouldn't be unfamiliar in our culture, right? I mean, most people in our culture operate with this kind of understanding about identity. I am what I do. Uh, you look at the way the Pharisee addresses the people who are not him, right? They're robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's defining them by what they've done, particularly the negative things that they've done, right? So you're not just a person who robbed, you're a robber. You're not just a person who's done evil things, you're an evildoer. He's moving past action and into identity. Identity. And it's a normal way that people separate us from them, right? That we lump people into categories. They are their sins, and I am my righteous deeds. (laughs) They are the wrong that they've done, and I get to be the right that I've done. It leads to this weird false sense of pride, Um, and more so an identity that's not rooted in Jesus. I mean, think about it if you think about it falling off the horse one way. You do the good things, you get the good identity. You do the bad things, you get the bad identity. So on this side, you get pride and smugness and self-righteousness. And on this side, you get guilt and shame and fear and all of the things. And it's like two sides of the same coin that are basically saying you are what you do. And when you approach people that they are defined primarily by what they do, of course you're gonna find ways to separate and to evaluate they give some people proximity and some people, no, God doesn't like them as much as he likes me. But what's amazing about our faith is that we profess, this is what the waters of baptism tell us, that we are not defined primarily by what we do, but by what Christ himself has done. That it is his death, to sin and his rising in new life that tells us who we are, that we are to put away the old and to put on the new, that we are not only cleansed of our sins, but that the power of sin over us is broken. As we hold to that identity, we see that like the only thing that defines us, good or ill, like we put down both of those things as the marker of who we are and we pick up Jesus. Jesus. In Philippians 3, Paul has this very conversation with a church who was wrestling because people had come and shown up and said, you know what makes you a Christian, the things that you've done? They were specifically talking about one of the primary markers of Jewish faith, circumcision, of being in covenant with God through that act. That's what makes you a good Christian. And Paul is tearing that down, and he says this. He says, look, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort though i could have confidence in my own effort and if anyone could and i love this he just drops his resume on the people cuz he's like you know what if anyone's going to have right standing because of what they've done it's me he says look if anyone has reason for confidence in their own efforts i have even more i was circumcised when i was 8 days old he's telling this to a bunch of gentiles who didn't have that culturally I was a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Everything that could have defined me as better than you, I put it down because there's only one thing that gets to define me now and it's Jesus. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from doing the things but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from from God, it is by faith. It is the gift of a position at the foot of the cross that comes to the mercy and grace of God. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship and sharing of His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. My friend Steve says it like this: He says, "Humility is knowing where you got what you have." And any time we are standing in our own efforts in who we are because of what we've done or what church we belong to, or thank God, at least I'm not like them, any time we're standing in anything other than a desperate gratitude that God is merciful to sinful people, and I am one of them, we're gonna find ourselves in a posture where slowly but surely we're starting to see the world different than us, and that's gonna hinder us from being the church we're called to be. You will never stop needing Jesus. You'll never stop needing Jesus. The grace that you received when you first came to know him is the grace that you're standing in now. You're no closer to Jesus because you've done the things. You're no further away from Jesus if you haven't. You are standing in the presence and the grace of God because Jesus made a way for you. And this is the anchor point of a church that loves the world is that we are not viewing people through what they have done or they haven't done or who they belong to or where they live or how much money they have or what ethnicity they are or whatever, that we see people as there's only people who need Jesus and people who think they don't, and we are convinced that we need Jesus. And so does the world. The key to seeing others like Jesus may just be seeing your own need more and more deeply. I'm gonna ask Brian to come up as we prepare for a time of communion. Um, My heartbeat through this whole series has just been for us as a church to slowly begin to ache more and more to see the people around us the way Jesus does. Um, There's there's only two kinds of people and Jesus is for everyone. Everyone. He may not live in everyone, but he is for everyone. And the hurdles that keep us from being for the world are the hurdles in some ways that we allow to stay up in our life. And there's a deep risk. There's a deep risk in us as a church not coming to a point where we say, God, search my heart. Like, is there any part of me that is keeping me from the people that you love right around me? from loving them, from serving them, from giving myself as an extension of the way that you give yourself to the world. There's a risk in asking the Holy Spirit to show you that, of saying, my glasses are dirty and I need you to come clean them. I need you to help me see the way that you see. But there's a greater risk in never asking that, of keeping this position where we're like, Shh, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not like those people in that political party, or who live in that neighborhood, or live in that country, but thank God I'm not like them. We hear that and we're like, "Oh, that's that's ugly," and it is. But what Jesus was even showing the religious people of His day is, if you're not careful, and if you're not humble, and just saying, "God, have mercy on me," even the small ways that we are there that keep us not only from acting like Jesus, but of interacting and seeing the world like Jesus. And that's not a risk I wanna take personally. There's a risk in asking Jesus to search your heart, but there's a greater risk of not. And we wanna be a church that's humbly just saying, God, even if it means you show me that there's ways that I see the world that aren't like you, reveal that to me because I wanna love the world the way you do. I wanna serve the world the way you do. As we move forward with this, this upcoming series that we're gonna have, we're going to focus on what it means to be a blessing in the world, to be a people who God has placed for the, for the good of the world right where we are. Um, but we have to deal with the fact that there are two kinds of people. There's the ones Jesus loves in and the one the ones that he died for. There's, there's people that are sought by God and there's people that are sent by God. And There's two kinds of people, people who know they need Jesus and people who don't. And the most dangerous thing in the world is a church who doesn't live like they need Jesus. We wanna be a people who are actively praying that prayer. Jesus, have mercy on me.